Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 30% off your new account for three months, go to Squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP12. This week on TWIP, are liquid lenses the next big thing in photography? Adobe kills off Flash for mobile devices and revamps its upgrade policy for CS6. Google Plus helps find the owner of a camera previously lost at sea. New details on the rumored Nikon D800 and the announced SB910. And an interview with Dan Brodnitz of Video to Brain on distance learning for creatives. It's Wednesday, November 30th, 2011, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to TWIP, your weekly source of photographic inspiration. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Joining me today on the show are some voices that we don't hear from that often steve simon and joseph lanashki hey guys howdy howdy hello frederick how are you i'm doing i'm doing pretty good lots of stuff going on but you know speaking of lots of stuff going on joseph you it's been what uh what like 18 months since you've been <laughs> it, it seems like it yeah i think it actually has been about six months but it's definitely been a while so it being a travel junkie you clearly have circled the globe probably three or four times in that window right yeah, you know, I'm actually going to hit million mile status on American Airlines, which has just filed bankruptcy. Great timing. Um, <laughs> on my yeah, so trip, all those so. those miles go away. No, I got their email saying that your miles will not go away, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's the hope. But yes, I have been racking them up. So it's wow, been fun. I've been all over miles. the place. That's like what? It, that's like an eighth of the way to the sun or something, isn't it? Um, yeah, I don't know. My math ain't that good. Or uh, my right. science facts, but <laughs> a million miles. Wow, a billion uh, miles. Yeah. Yes. How many? So, so just give us give us the cliff notes, Joseph. What's been up in this in the last six months? Sure. Um, been doing a lot with education. Actually, I had a gig up in Canada and then in Hong Kong with the Chinese International School, working with kids and working on teaching. It's not about really teaching photography. That's kind of what I'm doing. It's more about teaching kids to see things in a different way through the guise of photography. So we teach them how to use a camera and teach them how to look at things a different way, how to get better pictures. And in the process of that, teach them to see the world through a different light. That's so cool. it's, uh, it's been really fun. Yeah, it's been very, very cool, very rewarding. I uh, did that at a workshop in Beijing. Um, see, I've moved since we last spoke on the air. I'm now hey, not to the- Beijing. <laughs> no, not to Beijing. Okay. No, I, I like breathing. Um, so yeah, that, you like I using both there. lungs to their full capacity. <laughs> I know it's it's you know it's an amazing city, but yeah, the pollution is. Uh, they got to do something about that. Uh, no, but no, I'm, I'm living in Oregon now. Oh, okay. I have uh, last time I was on the air here, I was spending some time in South Carolina, but I'm now in Oregon, calling this lovely state home. So uh, did that. Did another uh, cross country drive to get over here. And also been working on some training with the uh, video to brain. I did a aperture training, which might have been out last time we spoke. But I also did a Final Cut Pro 
10 training, which just came out about two weeks ago or so. Yep. So that's really exciting. That By the way, I got my hands on that, and I've been using that to learn Final Cut Pro 10. So it's kind of it's kind of weird having one of my good friends training me, you know, on a on a <laughs> you know on my <laughs> computer. It's like you should be here teaching me how to do this in person. Yeah. It's almost like I am. I guess yeah. I should, I don't know if I want to ask this on the air, but is it any good? It's great. It's <laughs> okay, awesome. Yeah. No, it's Excellent. horrible. Don't anybody buy it. No. <laughs> no, it's awesome. It's it's great. It's uh it's exactly the dosage of Final Cut Pro 10 I needed because I didn't want to go like into all the weeds of settings and I'm not a I'm not editing Lord of the Rings or anything. You know, I right. just want to be able to cut things and it's it's simple enough that I can get into it as a photographer, but still complex enough that I don't feel like it's dumbed down for me as a photographer. You know? Right. Oh so, good, good. Then I yeah. succeeded. That's that's exactly and what I was going for. When I when I hear all that stuff that Joseph's doing, it just reminds me that I should really turn off the T V. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> other voice you're hearing is Steve Simon. Steve, you <laughs> other than sitting in front of the TV TV and watching what? What do you watch? Friends? Uh, what do I watch? Um, see, I can't really think of anything because I really don't watch TV. <laughs> but, uh, I know. You're in New uh, York. Who watches TV you, in New York? Caught- There's too much stuff to do. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm actually in Boston right now. I'm, yeah. uh, I'm going to be doing a couple of workshops here, Nikonian's workshops in Boston. Oh, cool. So I'm here for a few days. Cool. And uh, they really do talk the way, you know, you know Bostonians... Uh, I just, I just love the accent. I just love the <laughs> Boston. Well, Steve, I'm really <laughs> glad you're in the show because there's some significant Nikon news that that just broke this week. So I'm hoping that you're up to speed on it as our resident Nikon guy. Well, I'm kind of the resident Nikon guy, but you're also yeah. the resident <laughs> Nikon guy. So we'll uh, we'll chat with chat about that a little bit later. Um, but let's jump in. Let's jump into this stuff because there's a bunch of cool stories to talk about. The first one is um, about this. This new technology, which is not so new, it's been around for a while, but uh, it looks like major camera makers, including Olympus, Samsung, and Sony, have filed patents recently, in recent days, in fact, for this thing called liquid lens technology. So what is this? It's a technology that instead of having glass lenses, you know, your lens, your, the lens that you put on your DSLR are made up of a bunch of glass elements, um, well, these use liquid, and instead of using the different shaped glass and moving parts to focus lights or focus the light on the the sensor or the film plane it uses different voltages applied to the liquid to change the shape of the liquid thereby controlling the image so a lot of technology going into these lenses joseph i want to throw it to you first i mean is this what do you think? I'm not going to lead the witness. What do you think about this? <laughs> well, this, like you said, this has been around for a while. This isn't new. And it is, it's really exciting for a lot of different things. I don't know that we would expect to see this in SLRs anytime soon. But if you think about the size of it, the fact that you can do something super, super small, it means you could put a quote-unquote optical zoom lens into a camera phone. So you've got something where you can have autofocus and actual optical zoom by controlling the visco- by controlling the liquid, as it says, through through various voltages mm-hmm. in a very small amount of space. So it makes, I think the, the end result is it gives us a, the possibility to have much higher quality, really, really small cameras than what we have today. So is it, so are you saying this isn't really destined, I'm not going to see a Nikon liquid lens in the future? Well, I wouldn't say that you're not going to, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I think the first place we are going to be seeing this is in the tiny, tiny lenses because that's where we can, you know, that's where you can't put big pieces of glass, right? The, the reason that camera phones don't have optical zoom is because 
there's no space for all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's too much glass that has to move around. Yeah. Whereas with this, you can just you know slide some electricity through a piece of viscous liquid and have it change shape. And uh, you know you put two of those, stack two of those, and change the shape of different ones, and you've just created a zoom lens. Now, Steve, you know you you've been to some of the, the some of the most harshest places on the planet. Would, can you see yourself in the future carrying around one of these lenses? Like I, I put in the show notes here that one of the, the concerns that I would have, and this is just from a layman's standpoint, of course, is that if I have liquid in my lenses, does that mean if I go into a kind of a hot or arid environment, my lens is going to like go away or if i go to the arctic i mean yeah. we talked about keeping your batteries warm you know now i have to keep my lenses warm too i mean what does this mean yeah well i mean i think uh, well first off let me just say that the uh, little mouse that turns the treadmill in my brain is on a smoke break this stuff is just so <laughs> far you know ahead of i kind think of that mouse has emphysema I, <laughs> I think you're right <laughs> i think you're right but i you know it was interesting here joseph comment because i agree i think that's probably where it's going to show up i think it's true that if you've got liquid liquid will depending what it is is going to change uh it's uh it's going to be affected by the environment so it can't be consistent uh, the way the way glass is, although apparently uh, someone was telling me recently that all glass is actually liquid it 's right. just it takes a long time before it actually drops. But if you find vintage glass from a long time ago you 'll see that it could actually kind of fall the way we we know liquid does but I, I think as joseph mentioned it it 's kind of exciting um, for for incorporating lenses in places that uh, you know we 're not really that accustomed to and already today i uh, there's there's our, our colleague, our esteemed colleague, Ron, Ron Brinkman, gave a talk recently that I think you guys may have seen online. We should put a, a, a link to it. But he was talking about the future of cameras. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there right now that a lot of us aren't really aware of, all kinds of interesting um, cameras, op, you know, um, optic, uh, tiny little things that, you know, are going to be able to be placed, you know, not only when you get your um Anyway, I just think it's kind of exciting. (laughs) You know what I think about? I'm thinking about like, it it seems like a great technology, but as a photographer, I wonder, are these lenses going to be sharp? You know, and then of course the robustness of the image or of the, of the lens itself. Am I, if I drop it, will it splash? And then, (laughs) and then the other thing is like, like what Joseph is saying, if these, yeah, would open up the market for this, this zoom technology to go into devices like iPhones, iPads, Android devices and all that. But it also opens it up for Big Brother, right? So now you can have little zoom lenses on everything. <laughs> and it's yeah, just, you know that, right? that orange juice is recording you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, you can't stop progress. I know. No, I'm just. No, being, I think the older I get, the more curmudgeon-y I get. So there you go. Yeah, that's that's part of the course. I think that um, environmentally, I don't think you'd have to worry about it because obviously it would be in a sealed container, right? It would be encased in glass or something like that, and water can't evaporate if it's or any kind of liquid i don't think can evaporate if it's completely enclosed Correct. so yeah. i mean i guess at some point if it, it got so hot up. that it expanded or froze yeah but it wouldn't be water right it'd be some kind of other viscous liquid that would not freeze and you know yeah yeah actually that's going to so be on. my coming from canada i think i'm that's going to be my signature liquid lens effect i'm going to go out and freeze and i'm going to get like that frosty kind of look to my photos i think cool. that'll be good it's <laughs> awesome yeah, so much technology. See, I mean, imagine one of these lenses on the the Lytro camera. 
you know, with, so you have a liquid lens on there that can, so the lens doesn't have to be that big. And then you have uh, the sensor or the light field technology capturing everything so it doesn't have to necessarily even be in focus. And then later you post-process it in CS6 or 7, if anybody can afford it, which we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then it's all good, right? So Yeah, you uh, talk about big brother technology. That's, that Lytra, that's where I see that being the most useful is security. Or you put a camera up, a security camera that can capture a room and video, and it doesn't matter what it's focusing on. And at any point reviewing the footage, you can say, oh, what was that guy doing over there? And focus in on him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. When I talked to those guys, they said, yeah, absolutely, the technology can be applied to video. It's just, you know, video is always just a series of stills, right? So, yep. um, yeah, interesting. But can you imagine the processing power in the storage space that it would take to capture light field, high resolution video? That's insane. Meh. <laughs> yeah, you're like, man, whatever. <laughs> Technology evolves. We'll get there. <laughs> and then imagine backing that stuff up. And, oh, good grief. The mind boggles. Anyway, so that's the, uh, yeah, so that's the story on the, the liquid lenses. We'll put the links to this stuff in the show notes so you can form your own opinions on if this is uh, a technology that's going to be around or is it just a, is, if it's just steam. All right. <laughs> I had to do oh, it. Man. I had to say that. <laughs> All right, guys, before we continue, uh, I would like to give a nod to our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. They're the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. They've got more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, and they feature audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. And for our listeners, for listeners of This Week in Photo, they're offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to kick the tires on the service. Um, I'm listening to several books now. I just purchased a new car, and I got all these books loaded into the car because it has Ford Sync. Oh, um, so yeah. it's what, can you can you say what you got? Or? I got a Ford Edge, a 2012 Ford mm -hmm. Edge yeah. Limited, it's, jet it's, black with gray interior. It's awesome. Wow, Love it. man! And it's jet got this Edge. Edge stuff in there. I just got it two days ago. It's got this Edge stuff in there that lets me play these audiobooks. So I was I was listening to uh, again. This is like the seventh time I've listened to. Um, the Four Hour Work Week, which by <laughs> Timothy Ferris, which is a great inspirational sort of book that mm. you will never get to the point where you're working four hours a week, but at least you can <laughs> try to get to that 38 hour work week <laughs> or something. Right. So, yeah, I would definitely. Have you guys listened to that yet? Um, I actually, yeah, I read I, 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 Yeah, I've got it, but I haven't read it yet. So go ahead, Jason. <laughs> You've been too I read busy. It years ago. <laughs> yeah, um, it's good. I mean, he, he released a new version of it, or, you know, a. I guess updated version of it a couple I guess a couple Three months hour ago. and fifty eight minutes work week now. <laughs> yeah. It's the two hour work week. Uh but no, it's it's really good. I would definitely give that a give that a listen. And if you want to give it a listen, listeners, you can just head over to audiblepodcast.com. You can get a free audiobook, that one or any one of your choice. And that's audiblepodcast.com slash twip. Audiblepodcast.com slash twip. All right, guys, um, this next story, I've been wanting to talk about this. <laughs> we missed it the last show, and then we had the holiday show, so I wasn't able to get to this. So this is kind of old news, but it's still new to me, and I think it's new to a lot of people and relevant to the photography audience. And that's Adobe has announced, or they announced a couple weeks ago, that they were killing Flash for mobile, um, as well as upgrading or revamping their upgrade pricing model for CS6. So let's tackle the first thing first, or the, the, the Flash thing first. Um, Steve, I'm going to throw it to you. So my, where, when I first saw this, I was thinking, okay, this is the other shoe dropping. For Steve, you know, 
God rest his soul. First, Steve said, right. you know, Flash is dead or dying, and then Apple wasn't going to support it. And then there was a lot of hemming and hawing, and now Adobe finally acquiesced and said it was going. But the first thing that jumped into my mind was, holy hell, all the photographers out there that have these, especially the wedding shooters that have these Flash-based websites that play music when you first go there and <laughs> put on this, this big slideshow they're going to be screwed eventually because now the largest segment of the browser market, which is mobile, will not be supported on, you know, their website won't be supported. So they need to retool. And what do you think about that, Steve? Is that, is that the case or does it not matter? Yeah, no, I, I think that, um, <clears throat> I think that uh, ultimately, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's it's going to have to evolve into something that uh, is going to work, you know, best for the majority. I'll, I'll let you guys comment on this a little bit more than than I. But I I think that um, HTML HTML5 uh, seemed to make a lot of sense from a technical standpoint, and you guys probably know better about that um, from what I've read. So I'm I'm kind of happy that um, you know that that that's there's going to be more possibility with HTML5 uh, in the future, especially with you know Apple's foothold on mobile devices and the iPad, etc. So I'm I'm glad that uh, you know to see it happen. Um, I've got a website that I'm currently preparing with LiveBooks, and LiveBooks is kind of Flash based, and they were kind of holding out to sort of see um, what was going to happen. So they're going to have to quickly um, move and and figure out. Uh, uh, a better way to um, you know get the the mobile websites uh, working, uh, and they're going to have to go to HTML5 now. So, so we'll see. But I'll I'll listen to what you guys have to say. Yeah, well, Joseph, what do you think about that? I mean, is it is it the sky is falling for photographers with flash based websites? No, I say good riddance. I've been <laughs> way, I you know I have never been a fan of flash. Um, anything that makes the fans kick in on my laptop is uh, mm -hmm. not a good thing, and not having it on the iPhone or, you know, ultimately the iPad, but when the first iPhone came out and it wasn't on there, it was kind of like, oh, okay, so I can't go to certain sites, whatever. It was kind of inconvenient, but people moved around that pretty quickly, right? Any site that you really want to go to that's on your mobile phone probably has a, a um, HTML5 front end now just, just for you, just for those mobile devices. But as you said, the mobile browser is now the predominant browser. Mm -hmm. So it's time to time to get rid of it. It's clunky it's bad code it's sucks down your battery there's so many things wrong with it and i'm just very glad to see it going away yeah i mean when i remember when i don't know if you guys are old enough to know about this but <laughs> it was there was this uh a company called future splash um and they created a piece of software called future splash animator and they debuted it at internet world at um in the san jose convention center um, like, I don't know, about 650 years ago. And <laughs> I remember they had one of those, you know, the people that can't afford the real booths inside of the, the, the theater or where they, the, the main area. So they get the booths outside <laughs> by the restrooms. They had <laughs> one of those booths and it was packed with people. Yeah, and, then cool a few weeks, and then a few weeks later, Adobe acquired them, you know. And no, no, not Adobe. It was, um, um, what's the Mac other company? Media. Macromedia? Macromedia, thank you. Macromedia acquired them. And then, of course, Adobe ate Macromedia. So Flash became part of their, their bailiwick of, of technologies that they could serve up. But it was amazing at the time because it was like, I remember everyone was trying to do animation on the web, and it was all about Shockwave, and it was all mm -hmm. pixel-based. And you could do stuff, but it was big. Shockwave would crunch things down small, but the files were still 
pretty huge. And then they came out with this vector-based stuff that was like, okay, 2K, and there's like an hour-long animation going on, <laughs> you know? So, you know, it was really revolutionary at the time. And now you fast forward to today, there's no need for that because horsepower and bandwidth and all that stuff have increased to the point where it's not really an issue if it's 2K or 20K and plus the horsepower needed to, like Joseph was saying, to drive the engine of Flash will kick on your fan and suck your battery down. <laughs> so, I don't know. It was a, it's, an interesting, it's interesting to sit on the sidelines and sort of watch this stuff like grow up and die away and new technologies sort of grow up in their wake. It's amazing. That does seem a little bit ironic if in the early days it was all about being lightweight and fast and doing things that you couldn't do traditionally. Mm-hmm. Now it's become the other way around. I mean, it's the thing that's heavy and bloated and, and bogs your computer down. Yeah. And people install flash blockers and things right. like and that. That's why, so. that's why kind of why I think, in my opinion, that's why flash took hold for a lot of photographers and designers because they're like, you know what? I'm banging my head against the wall trying to get this line right here and I can't do it in HTML but if I do, if I make my entire design in Flash, I could design whatever I want on the planet mm-hmm. and have my vision come true. And now they can do that in HTML5. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think yeah. Flash, Flash was was booster rockets for the uh, for the engine, and now the we're in orbit. Now we don't need the booster rockets anymore. <laughs> I don't know why I'm geeking out on the space stuff. It's <laughs> <laughs> space is in my head. Literally and figuratively. Okay, uh, the second part of that is uh, of the story was that Adobe also announced a new pricing model for CS6, which is due sometime next year in 2012. And under this new model, um, the upgrade pricing, which is what people salivate for, is like, I don't want to pay the full thing, I want to pay upgrade or student pricing, but it's only going to be available to people who own CS5. So you have to have used, have to have purchased CS5 or upgraded to CS5 in order to get this new version of the software and the previous policy entitled owners of up to three previous versions to receive upgrade pricing but now only the previous version so only cs5 now to to sprinkle a little glitter on this whole thing scott kelby a friend of mine wrote an open letter on his blog his very famous blog and at the top of his blog he calls himself a photoshop insider right so he and from my own personal experience working with him when i was running the lightroom marketing at adobe he carries like some serious weight like he's like the president is showing up in a hotel and they lock everything down and clean the desks off and you know when scott shows up at adobe that's what it's like it's like oh my god scott kelby's in the building you know clean up so he wrote this open letter to them, kind of scathing them about, seriously, dudes, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, you're, 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 traditionally, you have been in the corner of your consumers, and now it seems like you are in the corners of the accountants. You know, So um, Joseph, I'm going to throw it to you first. You've worked in software. You're you know, on, the, on the Apple side of things. You know how this stuff goes and those endless meetings that they have whiteboarding out how things go and should go and projections and all that stuff. What do you think was do you think this makes sense is it is it time for Adobe to do something like this in order to remain profitable or is it I mean is this the other way around like Scott says you're not thinking from the standpoint of the consumer Well I I see two sides there two different uh, approaches to this I, I do think it's fair to think that you you do need to have the current version to upgrade to the next version that skipping versions isn't legitimate or at least have a tiered pricing mm-hmm. you know if you're upgrading from five to six you pay this if you're upgrading from four to six you pay this um you know if you have three or older then you have to pay the full new price yeah. so that i think that's legitimate i think that's fair i mean people need to buy 
the new versions to fund the development of the following version. However, where it kind of falls apart, and I, you know, I don't know what their pricing is right now, but from what I've seen of Adobe CS products, it, it's ridiculously expensive. So expensive that most people can't afford it, and so they end up stealing it. Yeah. And it seems to me that Adobe's on this path of let's just charge enough money so that the five people that actually buy it can fund all of our R&D for the next version mm-hmm. instead of saying, you know, take a take a, an iPhone app approach and, you know, it's the 99-cent approach. You make it up in volume. Mm-hmm. If Adobe was charging $100 or $200 for their software, $300 or something more reasonable, then I think they'd sell a ton more. Yeah. I, I, that's what I would think. It just seems to me that, you know, I'd buy... CS5 if it was 200 300 bucks, but what is it, like $800 or something like that? Yeah, it is. What, what are you running right now? Uh, CS3. CS3, yeah. I'm on CS4. CS3. Steve, what about you? Are you on yeah. CS5? Oh, no, it is CS4. Well, Sorry. I, CS4. I, am, I am on CS5, but I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm curious, you know, to know your opinion on this, but my guess is that uh, it's not so much Photoshop, but some of the other um, uh, software that's uh, in the creative suite that I think um, is really you know used by uh, the vast majority of professionals. I mean, Photoshop now, as deep as an ocean, and that's that's how deep it is. It's not really for photographers because we've got better tools now. We've got Lightroom and Aperture. So, the idea of owning Photoshop is a little less important to photographers because of what else is available, including Adobe's own product, uh, Lightroom. And <clears throat> so, I, I think that uh, you know. A lot of people are are not going to necessarily they're they're going to go elsewhere. So I I think it will backfire as far as Photoshop is concerned. It may be more relevant uh, to some of the other uh, software in the creative suite uh, of other software that that's being offered. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, for me, it's I'm I'm exactly that person, Steve. I'm I, when I shoot, it's going into Lightroom and I'm I'm playing with things. I may pop it out into you know on one focal point to do some you know pixel pushing or something and if i if there's something egregious in there that i can't in the image that i can't handle within lightroom then i'll go into photoshop but never do i need the power and all the magic tools that are in cs5 you know i like i could be like joseph i could be with cs3 i could be using cf cs3 and get along just fine because typically all i'm using is the clone tool (laughs) you know i may clone uh, things or something but everything else is in photoshop or in uh, lightroom yeah, the other thing, I mean, obviously, you know, Scott Kelby's open letter, I think uh, a lot of photographers were kind of cheering it. But, you know, you have to realize that uh, he's got a lot at stake, too. I mean, you know, he's got everything kind of um, invested in Photoshop. So if Photoshop, and, and I know they're, you know, also they're leaning toward Lightroom, of course, et cetera. But, but Photoshop is still a big part of that organization. So, yeah. you know, if Photoshop becomes less popular with photographers, uh, you know, it likely will will hurt uh, his organization as well. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, Scott also runs, he's the, he's the president of the National Association of Photoshop Professionals. Um, you know, they've got the cadre of magazines out, they've got the blogs out, they've got the Photoshop World Conference that, that's twice a year, once in Vegas, once in, in Florida. So, yeah, the, the brand is tied to them. But I think from, you know, I was sort of looking through their stuff the other day, it, it's it doesn't seem to necessarily need to be intrinsically tied to any particular one piece of software, you know? No, like, no, that's true. Yeah, like, he, 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 he could easily, retool. Uh, he could do like, like Macworld. Like Macworld changed to iWorld, you know, whatever, right? Exactly. He could retool and become whatever, imaging world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Lightroom world, you know, Aperture world, Joseph. What about Aperture world? That's the world. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
Yeah, for the photographer who doesn't need all the things that Photoshop has, there is, of course, the what Photoshop Elements, which is is at the right price point. It's like 80 bucks, I think, on the Mac App Store. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you know, for the photographer, that's probably sufficient if you add that on to something like Aperture or Lightroom. It's, but even the, the full-on graphic designers, it just seems to me that it's outrageously expensive. And especially, you know, most people who aren't photographers and, and do need Photoshop need more than just Photoshop, right? They need Photoshop, they need Illustrator, they need InDesign. And by the time you put those together, isn't it a couple grand? Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like flying business class. I mean, you don't necessarily have to have the creative suite to get your work done. There's, there's cheaper ways to, to do great work. So Adobe, in the end, might be shooting themselves uh, in the foot by creating such a, an unpopular uh, pricing uh, structure, particularly at this difficult time where everyone's kind of you know, economically challenged. Yeah, yeah or, I, think, or poor, I think the only right? people they're doing a favor to is the competitors who are going to take this opportunity to push their products at their lower price points a lot harder. And while it may not have the clout and all the features that Photoshop has, you're going to find, you know, there's lots of other products out there that have what most people need and cost a lot less. And I think you'll see people moving away from it. It's just too much money. Speaking of that, Joseph, so speaking of the the other products out there, do you, and I'm just, I'm shifting this away from the upgrading pricing a little bit, but I want to continue on this, this tangent. So I've been keeping an eye on these imaging tools that are showing up in the Mac App Store and, on, and of course, on the, in the App Store and all that. And these are some amazingly robust, cheap applications in there to do pretty much, you know, everything the, the novice might need to do with photos, you know, rather than spending, you know, almost $1,000 on a piece of software, they could spend a percentage of that and get a smaller piece of purpose-built software and do stuff. Do you think these small sort of piranha that are out there are going to chip away at the big whale that's Adobe? And, you know, is this, is this where things are going? Or will we continue to see this giant Photoshop, which is the industry standard? I do think they're going to chip away. And we've talked about this on the show before as well, the idea of being able to buy a piece of software like Photoshop in, in modules. Mm-hmm. You know, I want the cloning module. I want the uh, whatever, the text module. Yeah, the and I don't want video and I don't want 3D, right? Right, exactly. Why pay for the things that I don't need? Now, if Adobe's not going to deliver that, and I think it seems pretty clear that they're not, then other companies are. And you're going to be able to buy, and you already are able to buy, as you said, smaller pieces of software that just do one or two things and do them really, really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, recently I was looking for some, I wanted to make a collage of photos with a, a very specific, just a few photos on a table with little white borders and little drop shadows under them. And you know, playing around in Photoshop and couldn't come up with an easy way to do it that looked good. So I went onto the Mac App Store, typed in Collage. Oh, look at this, an app called Turbo Collage. It's like $5 or maybe $10 or something like that. And it's great. And it does exactly what I want. And it's cheap and it's lightweight. And if I only use it once, it was worth it. Yeah. It's just that I think is where we're going to see things going. When you want that specific thing, just download the app and do it. Now, Steve, would that would something like that fit into your workflow if Adobe, you know, finally decided, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do the Ma Bill thing and break up Photoshop into pieces and let people buy what they need? Would would you, as a working photojournalist traveling around, would that fit into your work style, or do you just want to buy the whole kit and caboodle and go from there? No, it, it certainly would. I mean, you know, less is more for me in so many ways. You know, from the composition of a photograph to kind of what I'm carrying, which you know, the less I carry, the the more I use it. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to, you know, my, my digital workflow, and that's why I kind of stick with Aperture, and I'm sure that, you know, Aperture and Lightroom users uh, realize that uh, they can do just about everything. It's just when you get into sort of composite images, when you want to move mm-hmm. pixels around, that's when 
when uh, that's when we need to go to elements right (laughs) exactly exactly so no absolutely absolutely i i think that uh you know photoshop is is way overkill for you know most photographers that have it never never go near uh you know 74 percent of what it can do so you know i i think that um ultimately um i don't know what the market is for photoshop in terms of photographers versus other people but um they're not really uh, looking at photographers when they come up with uh, a pricing structure like this. Yeah. I, don't know, I remember back in the day when, when the new versions of Photoshop came out, and I'm dating myself again, but that's okay. But I remember when layers showed up. I think it was in Photoshop 3. You know, it was like, oh, my God, that. layers. We could do all this cool stuff. And it was, it was like an event. That, it was like changing the world that this, new, this software allowed you to do this thing. But now, you know, it's like... I'm I'm getting that same kind of electric feeling when I look at different apps that are showing up for different purposes. I'm like, oh wow! Like Joseph, you were saying with the collage thing. I'm like, oh wow, I can do that now. Oh no, I can I can do depth of field on my iPad or you know this kind of stuff. I'm not yeah. seeing. I'm not getting that kind of electric feel from Photoshop anymore. Right. I don't know, but it's just me. No, it's not just you. It's not just you. All right, guys, before we go on to our next story, I want to take a moment to remind our audience about our Facebook and Google Plus pages. You can join in on our conversation or otherwise give us your feedback, heckle us, tell us you love us, all that stuff. Submit your questions, comments, and more. Just head over to facebook.com slash thisweekinphotography. This Week in Photography, facebook.com slash This Week in Photography. And on Google Plus, you can find us. Here's a short code for us because Google hasn't implemented the the whole um, human readable names yet. So I made a short code. You can get to us at fvj.me slash twip plus. That's fvj.me slash twip plus. And if you're looking for me, you can find me on Google Plus at fvj.me slash plus. So just fvj.me slash plus. And that'll get you to my page. Please, please friend me or follow me or whatever. All right. Uh, story number three, guys. Uh, this one is, a, I think, is a quick one, but this is really interesting. I love these human interest kind of stories. So Google Plus, speaking of Google Plus, have they reunited, reunited a DSLR owner with his images a year after they were sort of bathing in the salty depths of the Pacific Ocean. So Marcus Thompson, he was scuba diving in Deep Bay outside of Vancouver, and he discovered a Canon 1000D, and he pulled the SD card to uh, see that he could, re- he found out he could recover the images, but uh, and he, I guess by the date on the images, they'd, uh, they'd been sitting in there for about a year. So he took them and put them on Google+, Plus to see if he could identify or, or someone would claim the images, and within a day... The hive mind that is Google was able to track down and contact the owner who was a firefighter in British Columbia. Now, who's a cannon shooter on here? Oh, Joseph. <laughs> I'm a Canadian, though. <laughs> yeah, there Ooh, we go. Gosh. Ooh, there's a battle. Who does we it go got to two, The two C's together. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Joseph. Joseph, I mean, does this give you a warm fuzzy that uh, you can go dunk your camera and maybe get, get your images later? It does. Well, I'd rather not do the dunking my camera part, but it does give me a warm fuzzy. It's it's great. Um, I mean, obviously, it doesn't matter what type of camera it was, and and I guess uh, from what I was reading, most SD cards will handle being submerged in water for quite some time. So, the fact that the photos were still recoverable isn't itself all that remarkable. But just the fact that someone would find the camera and take the time and effort to do that, I think, is great. I, I just think that's really really cool. It's a lovely little story, 
And the fact that people found it, I mean, that's in a day? That's, that's crazy. crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, you talk about a hive mind. And for those people that are interested, they're like, what kind of card was it? It was a SanDisk Extreme 3, 20 megabytes, megabits per, is it megabyte, megabytes per megabyte. second. You know, and, and that is really the story here as far as I'm concerned. Now, granted, I'm a member of the SanDisk Extreme team, but it doesn't really matter, <laughs> even if it wasn't a SanDisk <laughs> Which card. means anything you say from this point forward is suspect. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, think about it. I mean, I've heard all kinds of stories about, you know, people having their compact flash card. SD cards are even more robust. I mean, it's definitely, in my opinion, arguably the strongest link in the digital chain. I mean, that little card is, is pretty indestructible, and this story just... There's a big explanation point to that idea, and that is, you know, it's underwater in salt water for like a year, yeah. and the images were digital and and retrieved without without trouble. So, I mean, that's pretty amazing when you when you think about it. And and I do say to people now, granted, you know, there's a couple of big name manufacturers, but you know, a digital image is a di digital image, but you should invest in a high quality card because. Um, you know, the big makers like SanDisk, they make all the components. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different cards out there. Uh, the images will look the same, but it just it just revolves around consistency and, and kind of um, uh, sort of how, how weatherproof the, the casing is, etc. And, and that's pretty amazing that uh, it can survive. Uh, film certainly would, would not have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, sorry, Steve, Lexar. You know, <laughs> I use <laughs> no, I Lexar. Mean, I'm saying both, both of the big manufacturers, they make all the components. Yeah. And, and, and that's where, you know, if you're going to cheap out on things, um, I don't know. What do, what do you cheap out on? I know, right? Out. I mean, it's like lenses and memory cards. You know, where, where are you going to? Where are you going to cut corners? Yeah. Joseph, what are, you, what are you using in your cameras? Uh, I have a mix. I have Lexar and SanDisk. So, oh, um, nice. yeah, they're, you know, they're both, both great, both reliable, don't fail. Yeah. I, you know, I got to say, I, I do have SanDisk as well, but those are my older cards. So my, like, two gigabyte cards and so. But uh, when I started buying the larger cards, it, largely after I interviewed Jeff Cable from Lexar, he's a, a, some, he's a big muckety-muck over there. But uh, I actually sat down with them at Lexar headquarters, and I looked at their facilities and all that stuff. You can look in the archives of TWIP to see it or to listen to it. But uh, I was blown away at their just how they do things over there. So from that point forward, I started buying those cards. And you know that SanDisk invented the CF card. And they co-invented uh, a lot of these other memory cards out there, too. So. And did you know that Xerox Park invented the mouse? Where are they? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think, Steve, that was a slap down. Oh, was. okay, okay. Well, I tell you it, what, you we know? should uh, each, you grab your Lexar card, I'll take my SD card, and we'll go swimming. Yeah, there you go, there you go. And we'll see how it all transpires. Yeah. But what a great story. I mean, it's amazing. And it also just underlines how small a world it is and how instant you can get that message in a bottle out to the entire world. And it's, it's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the world is definitely shrinking. All right, this next story that I want to chat about real quick, Steve, I know is near and dear to your heart, Nikon. Um, the photos and specs in the Nikon D800, the successor to the D700, and probably the cousin to the D7000, which I still have an affair with. Um, they, the photos and the specs have leaked, as well as the, uh, Nikon has announced the SB910, their new speed light. So, Steve, you are a... You, what, 
you're associated with Nikon in, in some sort of sponsored way, right? Well, I'm I'm kind of associated. I mean, I monitor their their Flickr Nikon Digital Learning Center sites, and you know, I have done. So, I mean, I'm a Nikon guy. I always was. I yeah, mean, me since too. my my FM2 back in '75 or something. I forget before Joseph was born. But oh, it, I go back a long time. I was watching time. Transformers back then. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> I go GI back Joe. <laughs> I go back a long way with Nikon, but I've always been a Nikon guy. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's no secret that uh, Nikon, um, you know, we've been expecting some replacement products. The D700 uh, is sort of the dinosaur in the Nikon camera lineup, and it came out in 2008. And most of us can't remember that far back, but in a digital world, 2008 doesn't seem that long ago. It really wasn't. Mm -hmm. But it's probably the, the, the oldest current camera in the Nikon lineup. So we've been waiting to, to see something come out. I think that, you know, we all know what's been happening, you know, with that horrible earthquake in Japan and, and you know, the floods in Thailand. It certainly has affected a lot of different uh, camera manufacturers and, and uh, you know, slowed things down. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I expect we'll see something and maybe soon, but but I, I can't really comment on the you know the the specs. We don't know what it, it you know it, who knows. There's all kinds of weird stuff. But the the SB910 is real. That did come out. Yeah. So that's and, not a rumor. That is actually announced officially, right? Exactly. Exactly. What, what so, does that give us? Well, I tell you what. You know, it's it's not a huge upgrade. I mean, it it might be the SB901 because you know the, it looks pretty much the same. From what I can gather, it's it's pretty much the same size. Um, one of the big problems that uh, you'd, you'd hear a lot about the SB900 series was the thermal cutoff, which is kind of a safety for when you get a little bit too excited and fire too many flashes in a row. Yeah. Um, the, the flash will overheat and actually stop, and it won't start again for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And for a working professional at a wedding, that is just, you can't have that. Mm -hmm. So they, they did allow you to cut off that, that cutoff, and um, so I you could just burn it up. So, like <laughs> so you could just burn it up. But I mean, I I make sure I turned it off, and I've never really um, had a problem with it. Yeah. Uh, but I guess I guess it was problematic enough that it required uh, some fixing. So the 910, as far as I can tell, it's it's very similar. Um, it it looks like they've added a, a couple of things. It looks the same. Um, uh, when you look at both flashes, it's really kind of hard to tell the difference. Where the zoom button was, now there's a menu, so there's fast access to the menu. Mm. In my opinion, the SB900 was a great uh, leap from the SB800, although, you know, don't tell that to David Hobby, who, who loves his uh, SB800. Yeah. Uh, the reason is that you have fast access to be able to do um, use your, your flash as a remote. So if you're doing any kind of wireless and multi-wireless flash, it's great to just be able to set it um, on remote very quickly without having to dig into the menu. Yeah. So the SB910 allows you to, it's got quick access to the menu. Otherwise, it looks pretty well the same. And uh, now when you put on color filters, on, you snap them on top. If you're in auto white balance and you put on a tungsten correcting uh, filter on the flash, the camera will automatically set it to tungsten, which is kind of a nice little thing if you're on, on auto. But it's, it's not a huge difference. It looks like the power and recycling time is uh, very similar. They fixed some problems with the old one, and they raised the price another 100 bucks. So, it's, so, this you know, means, so what I'm hearing is my, the SB900s that I have, I don't have to give them the cold shoulder. And for people that are considering buying strobes, they could probably now pick up SB900s for much cheaper than they could before this announcement. 
Absolutely. I think that's always the case. You know, just because a new camera is announced does not mean your old camera suddenly sucks. It still does all the great things it always did. But, you know, you kind of, you know, you're seduced by some of the new fe features here. I think if I were, you know, buying new, um, I might consider the SB910 if I felt that, uh, especially if I'm a professional and I was a little bit worried about that overheating issue, which a lot of professionals never really had that problem. But but it did exist. I mean, it, it did happen for some. So and at least, and, you know, to rectify that now, instead of overheating and turning the, the, the flash off, it actually just slows down the recycling so you can't mm -hmm. get to the point where you're shooting fast enough to overheat it. So, yeah. you know, that's how they remedied the problem. Well, Joseph, do you think, uh, looking at this, and look, this, so from what I'm hearing from Steve, is this is almost kind of an incremental upgrade from the 900. So it's not, not radical. Mm -hmm. And even going from the 800 to the 900 wasn't that radical. So overall, I know you're not an icon shooter, but overall... It seems like we're, are we getting to sort of the limit of like, okay, what else can you do to a strobe <laughs> you know, in order to make Maybe. me want to buy the next model? Maybe. I mean, this is, it's clearly a dot release um, and it's, it's a shame that it's $100 more. I mean, that just does, that just seems kind of painful um, for Nikon shooters. What is the and price point of this? We, we never mentioned it. 549 That's the suggested price. But, you know, usually that's what they'll sell for for the first while. Yeah. And that's up from 449 right? Isn't it $100? Yeah, yeah so you're saying you know, the, the 900s will be cheaper, but probably not because they... Well, you're right, Joseph. You know, the SB800, it was so beloved. So when the 900 came out, it was so much bigger. The 800s were selling for more than what you paid for them. Um, yeah. I, I think, though, that the 900 was a valid and, and much better flash just because it allowed you to easily set your camera to remote quickly without having to dig in. But anyway, continue. Yeah, no, that's that is key, and that's um, it's funny to hear you say that about the Nikon flashes because the Canons did the same thing. The older 580EX, you could easily switch it into from master and slave mode, just with the hardware switch, and then they'd put it into the software button in the latest model, which is just mental. It's really hard to to do it, and if you don't do it all the time, you could struggle for minutes trying to remember how. So hopefully there will be an update to the Canon strobe as well. But for the most part, I'm just jealous because the Nikon strobes are so much more advanced than <laughs> Canon. Still, one of those one of those points that just you know, as a Canon shooter, I'm always grumbling about. But uh, I did see a thing on Joe McNally's website. He already did a review of the uh, the new SB910, and he seemed to have good things to say about it. Uh, it certainly seems to be a, a nice little piece of kit for sure. Yeah. Shame about the price up uh, uh, increase though. That's too bad. Yeah, well, you know, well, I'll keep a look, keep an eye on it. And uh, but right now, I still have SB. I have a SB twenty four. Remember those, Steve? Uh, sure. Yeah, I do. I do. And you uh, know, they still work. I mean, yeah, you know, I still have SB twenty. I have an SB twenty four and SB twenty five. I've got an SB eight hundred and two SB nine hundreds. That's my flash lineup. Is the SB twenty four the one with the kind of rounded head? Mm hmm. Yeah. Man, I used to because I shot Nikon back in the day of film. That's what I had. I had one of those lights. Yeah. Yeah. Man, yeah. that's old. Yeah, they're great. And they still work, you know, if you take care of your gear, you know. Of course. And of light course. is light, so I'm, it's not like my light is getting old, you know, it's still the same light. Well, but it might change color over time. It might, but, you know, there's software now, I can correct it. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it would be nice to have, I mean, I know, I don't know if you guys use Pocket Wizards or Radio Poppers, but... Yes, I use the, Pocket Wizard. Yeah, the, the Radio Slave, I mean, that gives you the, the uh, reliability that you need, particularly if you're a professional out there shooting. And the CLS system in, with Nikon, and it's probably similar with Canon, you know, it, 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 the beam needs, it's sort of a line of sight situation. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I would have liked to have seen on the 900 maybe is uh, an extra little beam. So there are times when, you know, the flash 
uh, trigger is not going to allow the wireless to flash with CLS. And that's why, you know, the radio slave is such a great thing to have. But, you know, the Dream Flash would maybe incorporate, you know, radio slaves in it, maybe a little bit more powerful. Yeah, no, that'd make it worth the extra hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's I, I, I said it before. I'll say it again. It is just a great time to be a photographer because there's all this cool stuff coming out, all these different pieces of hardware, software, mm-hmm. everything that just, uh, you know, makes it fun to geek out on this stuff. You just got to keep an eye on it because you'll be spending all your money and never taking any pictures. Absolutely. So, you know, you glossed over the uh, this D800 leak. Um, can we come back to that? Let's go back to that, yeah. Let's go back to that. So I'm looking at these specs on my notes here. Is this a typo 36 megapixel? <laughs> I don't think that's a mega. I don't think that's a mega typo. I don't think it's a typo. <laughs> yeah, thirty six. So here, here are the rumored specs. It's smaller and lighter than the D seven hundred, which is kind of like a the D seven hundred. Kind of feels like a D three without the like the the motor drive piece on it, the battery pack on it. Um, the resolution is rumored to be seventy seventy three sixty by forty nine twelve at thirty six megapixels. It's rumored to have CF plus SD memory card slots, a slightly larger display, and video that should that supposedly or allegedly rivals that of the D3S, Steve's camera. So <laughs> um, that that's that's the rumor. I don't know. All right. So what do well, you think? I'm gonna I want to hit a couple. The CF plus SD. That's it's kind of funny because you know the Canon Canon finally announced the new 1D line, right? The 1D yeah. Smart. Yeah, which uh, we've been raving about, yeah. right? It's which is fantastic, and they finally put in dual CF cards, and it was like, yay! There's finally dual CF cards. All those Nikon people can stop making fun of me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and now Nikon has gone and gone the other direction, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But um, but well, I think aside, Joseph, they've they've done that because um, you know the smaller cameras, uh, you know the D300s and the D7000 have the CF. And or sorry, they they have SD. The D300s has a CF and SD card, but I suspect the the new top end will probably have dual CF cards like the D3s. Right. Car- carry enough. on. Carry on. Well, okay. So this 36 megapixel. Uh, this I just I got to ask about. I mean, there is. Uh, this has been talked about here before, and I think it's too bad Alex isn't on because I think he knows a lot more about this um, certainly than I do. But isn't there a point where you exceed the resolution of the lens? Like 36 megapixel. Mm. I don't think the lens can resolve the standard lenses can resolve that. So does that mean they have to have all new lenses, at least new coatings, fancy new lenses that are going to be a lot more expensive? Um, it, it just seems it's huge. I mean, Canon went the other direction, right? The new 1D camera is a lower resolution, yeah, and they're focusing on quality of those pixels as opposed to just cramming more pixels into it. Now, obviously, without seeing the image quality, we you know we certainly can't debate how good or bad it is. But it just seems to me that. It's getting a little overkill, and let's not forget that a 36 megapixel file is not something you want to edit on anything but the most robust machine out there. Right. And even that's a bit questionable. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, my 21 megapixel files off the 5D choke choke down my MacBook Air. Certainly, they can really slow things down there. Um, but even on a you know powerful iMac, that's kind of like you know, I wish that uh, wish this file was maybe a little bit smaller. Yeah, thirty six megapixel. Mm, I, don't I know. know. I'm at uh, with with the D seven thousand that I've been you know carrying around lately. It's at sixteen point two megapixels, and that's been more than adequate than anything. I mean, I'm not shooting billboards or you know Madison Avenue magazine spreads and that kind of thing. So, but and those folks are, are shooting medium format anyway. So. Well, right, exactly. If you're really being hired to shoot that sort of thing, exactly, you are shooting medium format. 
Um, and, you know, you could argue that, okay, now you don't have to, right? But there's the whole thing of the image. If you are charging $20,000 a day as a photographer to shoot a billboard that's going to go on Times Square, you got to walk in the door with a Hasselblad under your arm. You can't walk in with your Nikon or Canon, right? right. That's that's just kind of accepted. Um, but there were tests, it was probably a year, maybe two ago, that I, I remember watching this whole video online of doing test prints at billboard size, like literally building size, massive, massive prints off of lower resolution, like 12, 12 megapixel cameras, and they're fine. Because when they're that big, you're not standing six inches away from it. You're you know, at the bottom of the street. It's yeah. up on a building. Or driving and, by, right? Yeah, or driving by, and it looks absolutely perfect. So it, it definitely does seem that the megapixel war is getting a little bit out of hand, and I thought we'd kind of seen the end of it, but... I guess uh, I guess not. Remember these uh, are this these is, are rumors. This is rumor. These rumor, are rumors. Rumor, rumor. This is rumors. Okay. All right. <laughs> don't forget Nikon has been the one that has uh, come out with high ISO quality over megapixelage because you know before the D7000 um, and the D3X of course which is a 24 megapixel uh, camera but uh, there's no other camera that you know Canon had the 21 for a long time but Nikon you know was lauded for the you know the high ISO capability and they they kept their their pixels down, so I don't know. Thirty six megapixels does seem a little. That's the one thing that in in this year looks seems a little strange. But we'll we'll have to wait and see. You know, we'll 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 see what happens. Yeah, yeah, it's a an interesting race. All right, and also while we're talking about the D seven hundred, if you didn't hear, Nikon released a firmware update. We'll link to that in the show notes. So um, definitely, if you're if you're shooting D seven hundreds, head over and get that. Hey, y'all, a quick correction before we continue with the show. In the last segment, we mentioned that the Nikon D700 was the camera that had the firmware update when it's actually the Nikon D7000 that has a firmware update. So in any case, the link to that is in the show notes. All right, guys, now it's time for something pretty special. Dan Brodnitz, a a friend of mine who is one of the guys behind a site called Video2Brain, the number two in the middle, so Video2Brain.com. They're a distance learning site, and if you've listened to This Week in Photo um, for a while, you know that I'm a big fan of distance learning and just different ways that photographers can get the knowledge that they need into their brains without either, you know, some people learn better by going to a school like Brooks or the School of Visual Arts in New York or something. And some people learn better by sitting in their PJs in front of their Mac at home, you know, watching people train them on certain things like Joseph on Final Cut Pro 10, that kind of thing. So Dan is behind a site like that, which is video to brain. They're kind of a lynda.com site, but different. And he and I talk about what the differences are between their site and lynda.com and why photographers in particular should care. I'm here with my good friend, Dan Brodnitz. He does a lot of stuff, um, but I'm going to let him explain to you what he does. Uh, so, Dan, what do you do? What is, what, what is your contribution to planet Earth? Uh, father of two. Uh, no, I, uh, I'm along. That's the most important thing. Something, yeah. Uh, I'm a long-time publishing vet. I'm also a a major macchiato consumer. That's a big part of what I do. That's since we're at a coffee shop. Uh, But I've been publishing for 22 years. Uh, Most of that was in book publishing. Uh, I was a publisher at Wiley uh, and at O'Reilly, where we started working together years ago. Uh, And nowadays, I'm the director of the English language program at a video training company uh, based in Europe uh, called Video to Brain. So I am sort of, uh, my house is uh, Video to Brain headquarters. That's very cool. Okay, so like you mentioned, we're at a really cool coffee shop here in Alameda, California. 
and this is uh this is like like I don't know. It looks like it's supposed to be designed like this, but it kind of looks like it just happened. <laughs> I like this place. So what this interview is going to be about is um, learning. So like like uh, Dan was saying, he's with Video to Brain, and they do these training materials for people. And if you've listened to me on This Week in Photo, you know I'm a big fan of distance learning. And, um, you know, I love books, but I think, you know, as, I, as I'm going to ask this guy, there's different ways that different people learn. So we're going to explore some of that and kind of go into the state of the industry and where things sit. So with that, where so with video training, right? So let's let's say for example, a Photoshop book comes out from a publisher and it's A to Z on Photoshop how to do this stuff. Is it better for me to go buy that off of amazon.com or should I be coming to a site like yours and downloading? I know you're going to say come to your site, but but just, you know, seriously, being frank, you know, should where is the line? Where do you draw the line? Well, I think people uh, learn different ways. And like I said, I started in books. I love books. Uh, you know, I write on the side. Uh, I think books are always going to have some place in our lives for sure. But I think uh, especially when it comes to media and when it comes to visual topics, uh, all sorts of topics, but especially with visual topics, there's a lot to be said for visual learning. Uh, and that's a big part of the transition that's been going on over the last few years, right? Their books still sell. Some fantastic books come out by some great authors and some great publishing houses. But I know for myself, when I wanted to teach myself uh, Final Cut Express back in the day, um, I took a video course as a book publishing person, and I was blown away by how quick it was. Just because all these books I've worked on all these years ask the reader to make a visual picture in their head. And honestly, the video has the picture right there. there you're, you're, you're in the tool, you're seeing it in action. Uh, and, and you know, we're all pressed for time and it's just a, a very quick way to absorb material and get to work. So uh, there, I don't think there's a straight answer of this media is right for everybody or this media is right for every kind of learning. But video learning is certainly very powerful, uh, especially for technology and especially for visual topics. So where, where are books going in general? So, you know, a good friend of mine, Scott Cowan um, at Peach Pit Press, He's a publisher, one of my favorite publishers. Um, you know, O'Reilly's a great publisher as well. But Peach Pit Press, and the, the question, I just had lunch with him a couple days ago, and we were talking about where is book publishing going, and is it going away? Of course, they don't think it's going away. They think it's, you know, of course, it's going to excel and go forward. But my question is, with the advent of the iPhone and the iPad and the MacBook Air and all these thin Android devices, all this stuff coming out and different windows that people can have into media, yes, you can consume books on there, but will we start seeing, from your perspective, you know, I know you're a book lover, will we start seeing books go away, especially as the, the newer ADD generation starts taking over, you know, and they're like, books, what? Are you serious? You know. Well, I don't think. I mean, I don't think text is going away any anytime soon. And you know, some people argue people are reading more today than they were ever reading. They're just reading different kinds of material. Uh, I think there is a, a bit of a there's a there's kind of a short term and a long term answer. The long term answer is what humans are going to evolve into over the next. 30 or 40 years, nobody's really sure of. You know, we all make these leaps. We assume, as you say, attention deficit issues and such, but we really don't know where that's headed. I think uh, short term, though, the concern for publishers is not, is the book going away? It's, you know, what's the role of the publisher? Yeah, you know, we work with Peach Pit. We, we love Peach Pit. I love Wiley. There's a lot of great uh, publishers in the business, and I absolutely believe they have a role and we have a role. And it's really just that every publisher needs to be clear what they're contributing. And in a way, the final product is is it's a tactical issue of how you're going to deliver what, what people have in, in this business, for example, how you're going to deliver learning, right? But it could be 
e-books, e e obviously, right? It could be interactive e-books. Um, it could be stuff on all sorts of tablets, all sorts of iPhones. It could be video. I almost think that's just one piece out of a more complex system. And, and the stress for the publisher isn't our books going away. It's how am I going to stay relevant as things shift? How am I going to, you know, the plates are all moving underneath us. We're all hopping and trying to make sure that we are really delivering value to learners and really delivering value to trainers and authors. And as long as we've got that squared away, uh, a lot of the other pieces work themselves out. So let's talk a little bit about delivering value. So there's this little service out there called YouTube. And I can go on YouTube right now, say I want to learn how to retouch someone. You know, I want to learn how to digitally shave a beard, for example. Yeah. <laughs> I can <laughs> hey, I can go, I can go on YouTube. Presumably, I haven't done this, so I can go on YouTube and search for how to do something. And there's going to be a gazillion of the tutorials up there from random people, some pro, some not, with varying levels of quality, quality on how to do that thing for free. So how, how me as a cash-strapped consumer, how can I justify coming to a service like yours and paying a fee to get the training that I could get over there? Uh, I think that's a, that's a great question. I think that's why I asked it. <laughs> and I have a spectacular answer for it. Uh, and I think any publisher who's not, I think probably every publisher is, there's a lot of issues we're all dealing with, and one of them is how do we compete against free? And we've been dealing with that really ever since, you know, AltaVista and certainly ever since Google, right? And ever since it became possible to reach out and get quick answers. One of the initial uh, answers we had to this question was uh, a book is different than what you find in a search, right? And I think that's still true on YouTube, that learning as opposed to reference material uh, is better suited for pay. If you want to just learn a specific technique, you can find usually something that will give you some instruction on that. So that, that's one piece of it in, in our business specifically is focus on learning more than just focusing purely on, on reference. But I think the two larger issues are time and quality. Um, free is great. I use free. We all use free. Uh, but free can also be time consuming and time has value. So as long as we're focused on uh, being quicker for people to find the answers that they need and the right answers that they need so that they feel like they're really you know, saving hours in the end if they're trying to do something complex, that's a perfect case of that's how we earn our, our keep. The second thing is almost uh, a truism, right? It's quality, which is you'll hear all of us publishers talk about the curator role. Uh, and, and I mean, there's a way to look at it that's a little bit bringing wisdom down to the mountain that I, I, I don't buy so much because there's lots of ways you can curate. You can curate with crowdsourcing. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, the editor in the tweed jacket uh, curating. But, but still, it, they kind of tie together because if we're keeping the quality high, if we're adding value to the quality, if the material that you get is clearly better than free, then you're saving time, you're learning more. Uh, and I think that's all wildly healthy. I think things that make us focus on earning our keep uh, is only good for everybody. It's good for us too. Let's talk a little bit, of, before we close it out, talk a little bit about technology. So, um, I'm putting you on the spot. So, video, <laughs> video to brain right now, if, I'm not, if, I don't, if I don't have it wrong, is delivered in flash, right? It's not. You have it wrong. I have it wrong, okay. Okay, so my question, I think it was a while ago, maybe. Yeah. yeah, so it was delivered in Flash. So let's just take it from that angle. Is Flash going away completely? Are you guys going to forsake Flash and go with HTML5 for content delivery, or how is that working? Uh, you know, that's a, that is a better uh, question for uh, the people at the company who know more about this than I do. I know a little bit, though. Wait, don't you run the company? <laughs> no, I, do. I definitely do not run the company. I, I know a little bit of it, though, and the short answer is it's not going away for us. Uh, we, uh, we have added recently, uh, and, and apologies if this sounds like a pitch, 
but we've added recently, we have an iPad app that just came out actually uh, yesterday, uh, and you can play our videos online, uh, and the player switches over if it recognizes that you've got uh, an iPad or an iPhone, for example. Uh, my understanding, though, is that we're not switching everything over to the, uh, the HTML5 player for reasons I can't quite explain to you, but I asked this question myself, and they said, no, there are still things that Flash is going to deliver uh, more quickly online than the HTML5 player is. Uh, so again, I'm the wrong, <laughs> I'm the wrong person to ask, but I, my understanding is there's room for both. On the videos themselves, uh, we have switched over uh, to MP4. Uh, but you know, everything, uh, things evolve. Uh, we, we no longer publish books uh, in ASCII. We publish in, people publish it. Wow, you are showing the, you're, you're showing the beard, the gray. <laughs> I guess Gutenberg is, is borderline ASCII sometimes. But, uh, but even you know, th things evolve and who knows what the format will be next year. Uh, but for us right now, H, uh, MP4 is a, is a great format for uh, lots of venues. So the, to close it out, we're looking forward, where things might go and where things are going, um, you know, I can rewind back 10 years or so. And distance learning, pretty much, you know, the sites, the sites that, that charge a fee to do this, it pretty much remain the same. I mean, there's a, there's a course, there's a list of chapters in the course, you click on it, you watch the video, you know, that kind of thing. The underlying technology, like you were talking about, HTML5, Flash, MP4, whatever, is changing and evolving, but the delivery mechanism generally is staying the same. What are we going to see going forward? You know, if we fast forward to say, I don't know, 2015, 2016, whatever, are we going to see, and it sounds weird to say in those numbers, <laughs> are we going to see, you know, what are we going to see? Is thing, are things going to change or are we, did we hit that okay, this is the way to deliver content on the web. No, I think we've just gotten, uh, we're just getting confident, you know, at this point. I mean, the, the things that have changed recently are where you can view it, you know, whether it's video or other. There's, there's a, a million machines you can use now that are optimized for, that deliver a spectacular experience. Uh, connections, even in the U.S., are good enough that you can uh, get, you know, high-quality video, in our case, delivered quickly. That's kind of where we've gotten up to. It's a fast, pleasant experience, and that's great. But there's a lot of stuff when it comes to uh, tapping the power of community, uh, and, and interactivity that I think we all feel we're just at the beginning of that. Uh, and there's ways, uh, for me, the ideal system is one that combines these things, you know, where we've got extraordinary authors delivering high-quality training, and we, and by we, I mean really the industry, um, but we're also all making sure that there's, there's an experience beyond that that makes the learning deep and rich. I mean, for example, there's sandboxes that you can use uh, when you're learning CSS that make it really easy to try something out and see the result. There's no reason not to incorporate that. And, and some of that's absolutely out there. So this is maybe what we'll see in uh, 2012, not what we'll see in 2015. But I think community interactivity, uh, being able to really try stuff out yourself on the fly and incorporate that with uh, the training is the rich mix that we're going to see soon. All right. Where can people go to find out more about this stuff, this video learning stuff? Apparently, it's taken off, you know? <laughs> yeah. Some people like it, you know? <laughs> where can people go to learn more about what you're doing, your company, and all that? Well, it's all over the MTV, which is, I think, where the kids are today. <laughs> you did not just say the MTV, right? You're like Alex Lindsay and the Twitters, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, MTV Europe is very into computer video training. Trust me on this. MTV 9. Uh, well, we're, we're at uh, videotobrain.com uh, slash... Yeah, video to thank you, uh, slash uh, EN. We also do uh, courses with PeachBit, and you can find our Learn by Video series uh, on Amazon and BNN and all sorts of great... Which is awesome, by the way. The Learn... Sorry to interrupt you. The, the Learn by Video series, I have... Uh, a library shelf full of those, you know, with uh, Lightroom at the beginning and CS5 and all that stuff. Those are those are really awesome. You, let's just before we close it, talk a little bit about that. What's what was the catalyst behind creating that series? Well, the, the history of it actually predates me by a little bit, but I th I think part of it is um, you know Peachpit has uh, great brands uh, and great people, 
Um, Adobe, I think we're all fans of Adobe, uh, and Video to Brain has a long-standing relationship with both companies. Uh, and so actually a little bit before I got here, we started uh, doing these long-form courses, and, and they were uh, primarily initially on the full app for the Adobe Suite, so we would do, you know, 17-hour course on Photoshop or, or Flash or Dreamweaver. And now we've added a bunch of smaller courses that we do with them too, uh, that are more like two to four hour courses. And then we do another, I think we've done 40 titles with them so far, and uh, we'll do 120 titles this year all told. So we do, yeah, a lot of, we're, we're busy, busy folks. Uh, a lot of courses all told. But anyway, it, it, it's, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I, I do like them. They, they're authored by some of your and my uh, favorite peoples. So it's a great crew of trainers. Okay, Dan, I have, I have a, a sort of a loaded question here, and please don't dance around it. <laughs> so, so there are, like we were saying, there are, you know, there's, there's training on the web, there's YouTube, there's all that. But not only that, but there's lots of paid resources out there. There's lots of companies out there that are doing video training online that I can choose from. Why would, I mean, you know, not to set up the t-ball, but, you know, and I know you have your PR pitch set for this, but seriously, why would someone choose your company over some of the other excellent resources that are out there? Uh, it's, you're putting me on the spot, and I'm not going to dance around it. Don't storm out and throw the mic on the ground. This interview is over. Uh, so the, the relatively short answer uh, is there are a lot of great companies out there uh, making great stuff. So it's not so much why we're better than somebody else, but there are some things that make us uh, different, I think. Uh, one that people might not know is that the English training is just one piece of what we do. Uh, we do English, German, French, and Spanish training. We've been doing it since 2002. So the English is actually the baby of the bunch that we started in 2009. Uh, and I, th I think where that helps the learner is we have access to a different pool of authors. Right? We have a lot of European authors, and especially when it comes to the visual arts, you find people who are just spectacular. And so we're, I think we're kind of reaching out to a different... Like uh, you're talking about me, right? Exactly. You're an international <laughs> man of mystery. Yeah. So that, that's one piece of it. Um, I, I think the experience is a good experience, and we have a sample chapter, and if folks want to try it out, they can test it for themselves. But one thing that's different about us is when you buy our courses, you can use them offline, where a lot of the other folks tend to have streaming. Right? And the goal for me really is uh, we have an iPad app uh, that just came out, and uh, I want people to be able to use the courses on their iPad eventually, like on the train, going through the Alps or something like that while smoking a cigar, so, something like that. Uh, this is the picture that you have above your desk, right? <laughs> Very, it's a dangerously specific picture. Maybe it's just me with a cigar and the iPad app. So that, that's another uh, big thing. And then the last thing uh, is the partners that we work with. And, you know, we work with PeachPit and we work with Adobe and we work with some great authors and every, every company does. Uh, but I think we've gotten really lucky that way. And we're one of those companies where our founder is an author himself and a trainer himself. And so uh, I think I've, I've worked at a couple companies that do that and I think it really helps the... DNA of the company to be learner-oriented, you know, author-oriented. Uh, it just changes your perspective from a bottom-line one to a how do we really help people uh, make great stuff. So that's the medium-winded uh, spiel. Uh, that, that was perfect. That was a perfect spiel. So I'm going to take it a level further. Okay. So cost-wise, how do you compare? <laughs> you thought I was going to ask a long-winded question, did you? See? <laughs> But cost-wise, that's awesome. I'm not editing that. <laughs> cost-wise, how does Video to Brain compare against some of the, the folks that you're competing with? I think uh, we tend to be more affordable. I mean, that's what we're, we're trying to be very 
uh, focused on delivering the right stuff for the moment. And in the moment, uh, if you can get a course for you know 35 bucks uh, that teaches you Android app development or teaches you um, layer masking or iOS programming, that kind of thing, I think that's a great value. And it tends to be uh, less expensive less ex less expensive than uh, what's out there. And then if you combine that with you can learn online and have a great experience that way, or you can download the whole course. Um, I think it's a good uh, value. Or if you buy the uh, the PeachBit courses, you get the disc as well uh, on Amazon. So we, we try to be very competitive uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, I, I think we're hitting the mark on that. Cool. All right. Thanks, Dan. This has been informative. And uh, we'll put the links to the things that we talked about. There, I hate when people do that. Yes, <laughs> click right. I hate that, you know. You know, people do that. They're like, click right down there. And like, what if I embedded this in something else? You know, there's no button. And it's frustrating. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, so the blog post that this is going to show up in, we will have um, all the links that we talked about in the show, and so you don't have to worry about remembering them. Plus, if I edited this right in Final Cut Pro 10, they'll have a little lower <laughs> if I can figure out how to do that. So we we'll see. We have a course on that. I need that course. All right, and that's it. Thank you. I'm Frederick Van Johnson, and that was Dan Brodnitz from Video to Brain. Okay, that was Dan Brodnitz. You can find out more about Video to Brain, of course, at video2brain.com, and we'll link to the site in our show notes. Before I leave, before I close off that interview, I want to give a nod to Joseph. So Joseph is an author on Video to Brain, right, Joseph? So you're Final Cut Pro 10, and you have some other titles on that site, right? Right. I've got a, an Aperture title, Work Like a Pro Photographer and Aperture, and that was released earlier this year. And the Final Cut Pro 10 one that just came out. And I am, in fact, starting recording next week a new one that is not a software-based title. It is going to be a Photography 101 title, essentially a video version of my uh, killer tips for getting the most out of your Canon camera, except that it's not, not uh, focused just on Canon. It's all cameras. So cool. basically turning that into video adding a creative component to it, and we start shooting next week in Austria. I'm Austria. very excited Austria. about that You one. had to fly huh? all the way to Austria to shoot video training. That's where the company is based. It's an Austrian company in Graz, and I am flying out there to work in their studios and do the recording next week. Kicking and screaming. So you're flying to Graz to, to record video. That's, are, uh, are you going to do it in English, Joseph? Uh, nine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hey, yes, Fred, it will be English. I, I just wanted to correct. I think you said... Firmware upgrade to the D700, but I think you meant the D7000. No, D700. Really? Yeah, D700. There wasn't. There was a firmware upgrade for the D7000 as well, but there's one for the D700 too. Oh, when did that get announced? Uh, just a couple days ago, I think. Oh, just really? here today on the show. Yeah, you heard it here first, Steve, Mr. Nikon. I, I thought I knew everything, <laughs> but uh, look at that. That's why it's this week in photography. D700. All right, I'll check it out. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, it's time for some listener Q&A, guys. This is the segment when you guys, our guests, and me, get to answer questions that have come in from our audience via the website, the forums, our Facebook group, Google+, Twitter, wherever you can find us online. Submit your questions, and our friends that help out with the show will hopefully get them into the notes, and we'll answer them here. And the first question, I'm going to throw it to Joseph. You want to read this one, Joseph? Certainly. Question number one. Kevin in the forum writes, I am looking at getting a quote-unquote good tripod soon. Should I go with a fluid head or a ball head? I'm hoping to be doing some interesting video work and purchasing two heads isn't in the budget. 
Uh, well, Kevin, I think if you want to do video and you want to do any type of panning, then you're going to want that fluid head. Um, if you're planning on just doing lock shots, then you know the ball head is great, and that certainly is an easier head to control and uh, to get into an exact, precise position. But if you want to do any kind of panning, you probably are going to want that fluid head. Um, I think that's that's pretty much the answer right there. So he should, he should get the fluid head and make it work for still photography too. Yeah, I and mean, it absolutely can. Um, in fact, the head that I have on my tripod is is basically a fluid head. It's kind of this weird hybrid thing. But anyway, yeah, it is basically a fluid head. And um, obviously I use that for stills and occasionally for video as well. But you can't tease I, us like that, Joseph. Now people are going to want to know what, what the head you have on your tripod. No, it's nothing special. It's some Manfrotto thing. I don't remember what. I've had it forever. But it's got this weird grip. I squeeze it and move it anywhere and put it in any position at, at once. Oh, okay. Um, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so it's like a lot of ball heads have have a really accurate, really easy way to, um, to reposition them super accurately, right? If I want to tilt it up or down just a tiny bit, I can do that. With my head, I can't. Right? I squeeze a handle and the whole thing is loose and now I've got to get it back into position. But if I'm doing video, it's it's solid enough where I can kind of pan and get reasonably smooth pans out of it, but not as much as a proper fluid head would. So if I was really dedicated to video, then you know, fluid head would be the way to go. Yeah, perfect. Perfect answer. All right, question number two is from Big Eater in the TWIP forum. Steve, I want to throw it to you. You want to take this one? Sure. Uh, Big Eater at wonders um, if he needs a macro lens. He doesn't shoot bugs, coins, or flowers, but does a lot of shooting of things less than three feet away. Since macros are engineered for shooting close, would using one provide more pleasing rendering of fine detail? Um, well, I, th I think depending what you're shooting, I think a lot of uh, macro lenses, and I, I could be wrong on this, but um, you know, they're, they're obviously designed to, to close focus. And I'm a big believer that, uh, and it was uh, Bill Durantz who, who articulated this for me, and he talks to, to his students, and he says that uh, take a picture, then move three steps closer, then three steps closer, then three steps closer. I think, you know, a lot of uh, the weakness in a lot of photography that I see, you know, at workshops, et cetera, is that, you know, people aren't really getting in as close as they should yep. or could. They're not getting out of their comfort zone. They're staying comfortably back. So I like the idea of, um, you know, getting in close. And certainly a macro lens gives you the ability to get in way closer than then some lenses will, and will give you that please, pleasing rendering. But you can also use it, like, for instance, the 105-28 macro is a great portrait lens, but it also is a, a macro lens. So it's a, it's a good way to um, you know, have two lenses in one. And I think most manufacturers make different focal length macros. If you have a longer focal length macro, it allows you to get in really close without physically being right on top of something, which is kind of nice. So, you know, I, I think sometimes when you get a new piece of equipment uh it inspires you to do new work and because you can focus so close uh he probably will and, and it might just open up uh new doors into the photography that he's doing so um i, I don't think it's really a bad thing i don't know what else he was going to do with the money <laughs> <laughs> what's this eating thing that people complain about all the time I don't know. <laughs> crazy talk <laughs> joseph exactly. you have anything to add to that uh, yeah i do i think that um if you're gonna shoot Close, like you said, three feet or closer. Uh, you know, most lenses that are going to focus that close are not going to be long lenses, right? A wide-angle lens will get quite close. You know, if you have a fisheye lens, you can get a few inches away. If you've got a 50 millimeter, you might be able to get a couple of feet away. But if you want a uh, if you want a long lens, then typically most long lenses, you know, 100 millimeter, 150, 200 millimeter lenses, have a much uh, much farther 
closest focus point. And so if you do want to get that close, you're talking about working with a wider lens, which isn't going to give you or may not give you the look that you want. So a lens like a 100 millimeter macro that does allow you to get that close and a lot closer is still that 100 millimeter focal length. So you're compressing the image. You're getting that long focal length look that you might be after. And in my experience, I have the, um, the older generation 100 mil macro from Canon and it is one of their sharpest primes, if not, the, if not the sharpest prime in their lineup. And it was relatively inexpensive. It's, a, it's kind of a sleeper lens. It is an absolutely fantastic lens. And that is you know, not to be overlooked. Um, he asked if they're, uh, are they engineered for, you know, if they're engineered for shooting close, does it give a, a more pleasing rendering? You know, I don't know. It, it's sh- probably possibly sharper, uh, at least in the Canon lineup it is. But, um, yeah, it's, it's worth looking at for sure. If you're going to get that close, I'd definitely check it out. Cool. All right, thanks, guys. Great answers. All right, it's time for another nod to one of our, our other sponsor for this episode of TWIP, Squarespace. They're the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. And like I've been saying on the show, they've got an amazing, easy-to-use UI for creating and managing your site, whether it be a website or a blog. It's optimized for folks that are you know, advanced CSS wizards and people who don't know what CSS stands for. They've got design templates in there so you can pick one and then customize it so that it exactly fits your needs. There's iPhone and iPad apps for updating the blog. They've got 24-7 support. So if you're working on your blog in the middle of the night and you hit a, hit a brick wall, you can, you know, contact them and get advice on how to proceed. It just goes on and on and on. Google Maps integration, Flickr, Forms, you know, all these kind of modules. It's it's an amazing service that gets you up and running, building your website in the cloud with very little effort, and you don't even have to understand what the acronym FTP means. <laughs> so so definitely check it out. Now, Joseph, I know you're running apertureexpert.com, your website on Squarespace, correct? That is correct. How's that how's that going for you? Do you, you love it? Love it, love it. Yeah, I actually have three websites running on Squarespace. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He's kind of silly. Wow. But, oh, it's Obsessed great. Much? I really, really, I know. <laughs> I know it's silly. But no, I really do like it. It's a, it's a great service. And, you know, what I always say, their software is great. You know, working online, everything is great. But really what it comes down to for me, what, what sets them apart from everybody is customer service. Whenever I've got an issue, uh, can't figure something out or I'm confused about something, shoot over an email and usually get a response within an hour, any time of night. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So cool. What are what are your three sites? Your three sites, by the way. So you know, Aperture Expert, the PhotoJoseph.com, which is basically a portfolio front end, and then the blog is ConfessionsOfATravelJunkie.com. Although that links off of PhotoJoseph as well. Awesome. Cool. All right, if uh, if the listeners want to get a free trial, you can head over to squarespace.com, just squarespace.com. You can sign up, get your free account. You don't even need a credit card. Just try it out, build your website. Then if you decide you want to keep that site, use the offer code TWIP12, that's T-W-I-P-1-2, and get 30%. That's 30% off your new account for three months. It's squarespace.com, and be sure to remember the offer code TWIP12. All right, guys, it is time for the pick of the week segment. This is this is where you guys can give your pick, and it can be software, hardware, gear, workshop, whatever, as long as it is somehow related to photography. Joseph, you haven't been on in 12 years, so I'm going to throw it to you first. What is your pick of the week? Ooh, ooh cool. I got a cool one. I picked up the Orbis ring flash adapter when I was out at Photo Plus, where, uh, where I saw Steve, actually. 
um, in New York a couple of uh, whatever it was a month ago. And this Orbis ring flash thing is so stinking cool. Basically, the idea is it's a piece of plastic. It's a ring with some reflectors in it. You stick any old speed light into it, and you've just created a nice big studio ring flash. You can put your lens through it like you would you know, traditionally work with a ring flash, or you can just hold it wherever you like and just use it as a basic light modifier. Yeah. And I had bought it specifically because in my new town here in Oregon, I was gonna, uh, I did go out and shoot for Halloween. I wanted to do portraits on the street at Halloween, and I needed something that was uh, completely portable and handheld. But I obviously I didn't want to just have a flash on the camera, and I didn't really want to use a standard modifier reflector. I wanted something a bit different, so I picked this up, and I was so happy with the results. In fact, if you uh, if you want to check it out, if you go to photojoseph.com slash Halloween, you'll see the front page for it and uh, you'll see some of the photos that I put in there. And it was just, it's a great modifier. I love the look of it and the fact that you don't have to use it pointing the camera through the, uh, rather the lens through the ring. You can put the ring anywhere you like. Really makes a big difference as well. In fact, when I was checking it out on the show floor at Photo Plus, the uh, creator of it who was there showing it, he was holding it different places, and if you hold it just above the lens, I almost like that look better. But it's a little bit harder to manage because you need both hands to do it. Um, but it is it is a really cool little product, so definitely check it out. Yeah, so I, I would ask. So I know there's the ring lights have been around forever, and traditionally they've been really, really expensive. I mean, I have one. It's from from uh, Paul C. Buff, and it, it's not that expensive, but it's great, and it, but it's larger. It's not portable like, like the one that you have. Mm-hmm. So what, what am I giving up by going with a ring flash like this one rather than my traditional studio flash like the Paul C. Buff light that I have or, you know, the pro photo, you know, gazillion dollar versions? Well, I mean, that, that's a big part of it is the price, right? So if you remove the price from it, of course, it's only as powerful as your flash is. And you're sticking one speed light into it, so you can't really compare the the output of a single portable speed light to something that you'd get from Profoot or whatever that's plugging into a wall or into a dedicated battery pack. So clearly there's a different amount of light that's coming out of it. But the shape of the light is essentially the same. Hmm. Uh, granted, those bigger, uh, the, the dedicated units are a circular tube, whereas this is a series of reflectors that make a ring. But... You know, I haven't done a side-by-side comparison, but considering the money savings, um, it'd be hard-pressed to buy a full-on studio light unless I, you know, really had a dedicated all-the-time use for it. Yeah. What did what did this one cost? Uh, there. What is it? It's about two hundred bucks. It was on the show's floor. It was a little bit cheaper, but I think it's about two hundred dollars for the light, uh, for the um, modifier. And then if you want to get the bracket to hold it together, then that's another fifty bucks. And it's. The bracket, it looks awkward, and I, I will admit and that's why I held off so long buying something like this because the the way that it all puts together looks a little bit silly, and it's this big, huge bracket. And there is another company out there that makes one that um, attaches to the flash. You you literally you put your flash on the camera like you normally would, and then this modifier slaps over that and then around the lens itself. But it turns out with that one that you have to buy the one for the specific lens and flash combination. There's something like a dozen different models depending on what you're working with. And that that seemed very limiting to me. So uh, even though I, I liked the idea of that better, I didn't like having to you know choose what lens combination I'd, I would uh, use in advance. Whereas this, it's just, you know, if then I can use it. Yeah. And the bracket does look a little funny, but it works. Uh, I Actually, I, I think I have a photo somewhere on my blog, actually, on the um, if you go to photojoseph.com and click on blog, there is a story that I started writing about the Halloween shoot, and you'll see a picture of the camera set up in there. It's a bit, it's a bit big and funny, but it totally works. 
does it uh will it make me look like i'm carrying a gary fong light sphere light sphere it's way way more impressive than that <laughs> <laughs> it's more impressive it is it's you look like you're carrying a beast of a camera because you are by the time you have that on there and and the you know a cable going down to the to the flash because it's obviously off camera the big bracket and the whole thing it's you're carrying a beast but uh you know nobody's gonna mistake you for carrying a little point and shoot that's for sure yeah cool all right, around 200 bucks, and you could at least get started in ring flash lighting, right? And ring flashes are the main thing about a ring flash is it's shadowless lighting, right? So you can, you're shooting models in it. Shadow, the, the whole idea of shooting models or people in general to make them more, look more flattering is to reduce the shadow. So if they have imperfections on their face, like pimples or indentations or whatever, shadows are the things that make those things show up. So with a ring flash or something like this or a large light source, it reduces the shadow effect, which reduces the look of imperfections on the skin, of making the person appear smoother, right? Right. Yeah, that's that is true. It's um it's it's just a different light quality. You know, you really have to see it to appreciate it. It is a different light quality than what you get off of an on camera or an, uh you know, the flash that's off to the side of the camera. It's it's really cool and the catch light. You get a really nice circular catch light in the eye and which is which can be quite attractive. So, yeah. Cool. All right. Steve Simon, what is your pick of the week? Okay. Well, you know, normally when I do my pick of the week, I'm at home in my home office, so I kind of look around at all my stuff <laughs> and I pick something, but I'm in Boston, I'm in a hotel, I look around and I see you know, a black and white TV, there's a <laughs> light bulb. Steve's <laughs> pick of the week is the room service menu. <laughs> <laughs> the neon glow outside the window and I think a gunshot in the background. But So I, I figured I would uh, you know, break from tradition and my pick of the week is your lens's widest opening. That's photography related, nice. isn't it? I like it. You know, Technique. As a starting point, as a starting point, I start out wide open all the time because when you're wide open with your camera and at your your lens's widest setting, you're getting minimum depth of field. So the the second you point and focus on something, that's going to be sharp. The foreground and background will be maximized in terms of blur, and you're going to emphasize whatever it is you've decided to focus on, which photographically generally is is a good thing. So it's a great starting point, but in my experience, you know, because I've invested in faster lenses, I love the 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 look that you get and and it could be just a powerful way to shoot and that is to kind of focus on something, keep it sharp, wide open and the rest of the photograph will still read. You'll be able to see everything, mm-hmm. but your eye will go, your viewer's eye will go to where you want them to go. So it's just a a powerful way to shoot. And you get kind of a beautiful look if you're doing portraits, if you're wide open or close to wide open. You know, your your eyes are going to be sharp and everything else might be a little soft and the background goes completely out of focus, you know, which is can be very nice. So I'm, I'm going to suggest if you're not normally thinking about that is to go out and shoot at your lens's widest opening and just concentrate on that and see what you can do with it. Love it. Perfect. A technique-related tip. That's awesome. Thanks, Steve. Hmm. All right. Uh, My pick, and I say pick, uh, but I have more than one. (laughs) So my first pick is uh, Video to Brain. So you heard that interview that I did with Dan Brodnitz, but um, I want to make them my pick um, for a couple of reasons. A, because the service is 
freaking awesome. It's just an awesome service. It's easy to use. Um, you just have to go try it out. Go play around with it. We've actually instantiated video to brain on This Week in Photo. So if you go to the, go to the This Week in Photo site, there's a, a link in the menu to training courses. If you click on that, it'll take you to uh, basically a, a, a section that has selected courses that I personally picked to appear for you guys, for the TWIP audience. So Video to Brain is in there, um, and you know the proceeds from that help us keep the show going. So that's what that is. And uh, But you don't need to go to that site. You can just go to videotobrain.com and see the same stuff and go in there. You can find Joseph's stuff in there. Yours, uh, Mickle Island is in there. I mean, we've had Mickle Island on, and I've had him at our meetups. It's just a, a wealth of stuff in there. There's a, a tutorial on there for doing green screen videography and that sort of thing. That's on there right now. It's a, it's a great resource that not a lot of people know about. So until a lot of people know about it, it can be your secret weapon. So go, go check it out. It's at video2brain.com. And the other piece of it is, the second half of it is, by the time this show releases, Video to Brain will have switched their or added a model to their their business model where they allow subscriptions. So right now, if you go there, you can purchase a course. Like if you buy Joseph's Final Cut Pro 10 course, you go there and you'll have access to it. You can even download the files and put them on your device and take them with you, um, which is unprecedented. Um, but this new feature that they're adding will allow you to subscribe. So you you can basically buy access to a range of things and go in there and have access to whatever you want as long as you're at a web browser. So it, you just got to go check it out. I would go, go around, poke around in there. They've got demo content that you can play to see the quality of the videos that they record in where, Joseph? Graz? <laughs> in Graz, that's right. Yeah, so you can see the, the quality of that stuff. So it's, a, it's an amazing site. And uh, it's uh, I can't say enough about it um my second pick is from a listener steven shepherd hey steven steven shepherd his website is shepherdimages.com he sent me an email he's like hey i appreciate the show you guys rock thank you so much you've changed my way of approaching photography basically um and i want to send you something to say thank you for for doing the, the show so he asked me for my email or for our mailing address so i gave him our corporate address and he sent me this thing called the squeegee it it's called a squeegee it it's 15 bucks and this is the most amazing thing you got to check it out so it's basically a rubberized thing we'll link to it in the show notes but it's a rubberized spray can kind of squeegee thing that you spray on your lcd or your computer screen or your ipad or your iphone or whatever and then squeegee across it and like in 10 seconds there's no more fingerprints on it. It's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. I just got it today, and I've been cleaning all my screens on everything I have. Um, and the third pick that I have is, I mentioned at the top of the show, and it's my new car. It's a Ford Edge, which I can't, I know it's not photography related, but <laughs> damn. <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell you a quick story before we sign off of the show. So, a while ago, if you're following me on Twitter at Frederick Van, if you're following me on Twitter, um, I put out this tweet that said, hey, I'm thinking about buying a Cadillac SRX. And you may say, wow, Cadillac? Why? You know, I was basically I wanted a crossover SUV that was American because I went I, I've had German cars. So I wanted to buy an American car. Um, so I wanted a, a reasonably decent kind of stylish crossover SUV. So the S the SRX was the car. So I go and I put a tweet out. Cadillac responded. 
and they said, hey, um, hey, well, you, you're co- they knew I was coming to L.A. for this workshop. So they're like, we'll give you one to drive for the week and then you'll love it. And then, you know, uh, they thought I would buy it. So I drove it for the week. I didn't buy it. Didn't like it. Um, I came home and I saw an edge on the road. And I knew Leo Laporte had been raving for the past several years about the Ford Sync service. So I was like, okay, let me go test drive one. And I was like, basically, I literally said, holy hell, when I sat in the car. (laughs) I said, holy hell. There's like, I felt like I was ready to, you know, fly a space shuttle. There's so much technology in the car. And that's what I was looking for. A lot of technology with nav and, you know, the ability to do all this crazy stuff that I wanted to do in the car. And there it was. So anyway, long story short, I got the car a couple days ago on my birthday, November 28th. I picked it up as a birthday gift to myself and have been happy with it ever since. So my squeegee it, because I've been using the touchscreen in the car so much, it has fingerprints on it. So I used the squeegee it on the screen in the car, and now it's like new. It's wonderful. So, What's the uh, coolest technology in your new car like that you're using that you really like? Oh, my God. That thing. It. I mean, you know Siri, right, on the iPhone 4. Yeah. So the sync service in there. I was expecting it to be janky, like, okay, it's Ford. You know, Ford has a bad brand image, so which which made me hesitant to even buy one. And so when I got in there, I was expecting, you know, like, low-quality plastic and all this stuff. I get in there, and it's, like, Lexus quality, right? So I hit the button to use the sync service. It's Ford Sync, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to go through all these hoops. Not to mention it had the Microsoft logo on the on the dashboard. <laughs> and a sony logo so like oh crap you know so i hit the button and i said um uh play what did i say oh play hip-hop you know that's what i said i said play play some hip-hop and boom it started playing it said tuning serious to hip-hop boom then i said okay play some jazz boom it's playing jazz then i said play howard stern boom it's playing that then i said navigate to and i read off an address in san jose and it programmed it in, laid in the route, and just said, then the system said, just say go to go there. You know, and all the while, I had my hands on the wheel. So it was just like this flawless sort of, holy crap, this thing uh-huh. understands me and I'm not redoing things. It was very much like the Siri experience. So It gets you. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets me. It definitely got me. So oh. I'm excited. I got the black version. It's got a gray leather interior, and it's uh, and it's loaded. So if you see one, I feel like the president, the motorcade <laughs> driving down the road, <laughs> like a mini president, because the president has expeditions. I feel like a mini president, you know. Anyway, yeah. so that's my. Those are my picks of you the got, week: video got, to like, brain, the squeegee, and the Ford Edge. What's that, Steve? Your, your gear all fits in really nicely and stuff. Yes, yeah. That was the that was the other main reason I got it because it has this feature where you can remote start it. And remote open the hatch on the back and hit a button in the back and the seats fold down automatically. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he's like, seriously? You know, it's like designed for photographers. So I hit this button and both seats just whoop flip down and I put my gear in there and I hit the button on the remote and it closes up and I'm off and running. Does it have? Um, it doesn't have a trunk, though, right? It's it's got like a cargo cover. Yeah, no, it's a it's a SUV, it's a mini or a crossover oh, okay. SUV, gotcha. so it has back seats, right? Gotcha. So you they almost fold said down. minivan, didn't you? What's that? <laughs> you almost said minivan. <laughs> it's not a minivan. <laughs> Curse you, Steve Simon! It's not a minivan. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Never. Again, well, congrats really. and happy birthday. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I can drink legally now. I'm excited. Awesome. Wow. Very excited. Look at that. So, Joseph, you and I will have a drink when uh, when you get here. So, Excellent. 
Sounds um, like a plan. Yeah. All right, guys, let's close this off. We're at the end of another exciting episode of this week in Ford Edge. I mean, this week in photography. <laughs> <laughs> this week in photo. Joseph, where can people go to find out more about your stuff and keep up with your travels? People can go to photojoseph.com and just click on blog to get through to all that good stuff. And, of course, over on apertureexpert.com for all your aperture goodness. And if I can just shout out there real quick, don't forget we do have a free live training that we do every couple of weeks-ish, just depending on my travel schedule. And uh, I just fired off a new mailing list that uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, the first one went out. And that's been quite nice. If you uh, go to that website and just click on the little subscribe up in the top right corner, you can subscribe to the new Aperture Expert mailing list. Very cool. Make sure you put the, put the link to that in the show notes so we can make sure that gets in the blog post. Will do. All right. And Steve Simon, where are you at? Where can people go to find uh, out? Well, I'm, I'm just sort of talking about my book, The Passionate Photographer. They can go to Amazon.com and check out The Passionate Photographer. If uh, anyone out there has read the book and you liked it, uh, wouldn't hurt to uh, put up a review. Like, wouldn't hurt the book if you put up a review, especially if it was good. If you didn't <laughs> like it, um, you can email me at Steve, Sim- Steve at stevesimonphoto.com and, uh, you know, tell me what you didn't like, and, uh, but don't put up a review. <laughs> That's not his actual email address. That goes to somebody else entirely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Cool. All right, guys. Thank you for that. All right. And also, don't forget to tune into TWIP Live on the last Thursday of every month, starting again in January. You can follow Twitter or follow us on Twitter or our Facebook feeds to uh, be reminded of that. And also, if you want to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, just head over to thisweekinphoto.com. There you'll find links to all of our online presences. Also, please support the show by leaving a comment on iTunes. Um, Positive would be great. And speaking of iTunes, be sure to check out the TWIP podcast app. It's a handy way to keep up with the shows as soon as they are released. And we're also now available on Android devices for all you folks that have been sending the hate mail to us about not being available on Android. We are now available, and Android users can subscribe to the feed. Just head over to thisweekinphoto.com for details. And finally, if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me at frederickvan.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. Jamakar.